Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 137 as I read to you from the New King James Version of the Scriptures, beginning at verse 1, the Bible reads as follows. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song. And those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. I call your attention to verse 4, when the psalm writer said, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And today, with your prayers and with the help of the Holy Spirit, I would like to preach a message entitled, How Can We Sing? How Can We Sing? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how real, how relevant, how right now your word is for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would use me, that, Lord, I would be your instrument. I empty myself of myself, and I ask that you would fill me with the spirit of God, the wind of God, that, Lord, you might play me, that you might blow through me a word, a message to your people. A word, Lord, that we will not only hear, but a message that we will apply. So, Lord, I thank you for what you are teaching us in this hour. Thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without a word. But in fact, you have given us a very sure word in these uncertain times. So thank you, God, for what you're going to say and what you're going to do. We bless you. We thank you. There is no God like you. There is no God beside you. There is surely no God above you. You are the most high. We worship you. We adore you. And Lord, we sit with expectancy, knowing you will speak. Speak, Lord. Have your way. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. It was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. who said, Freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Did you hear that? Dr. King said, in the height of the civil rights movement, he spoke a word that we need right now in this human rights movement, and that is freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. So rather than sitting around waiting for people's hearts to change, we must change laws in the land because people's hearts just may never change. And we are where we are today as a country, not because the oppressor, the historical oppressor got his heart right. But we are where we are in this country progressed as far as we've come with the need to go further because the historically oppressed said enough is enough and we demand freedom, we demand justice, and we demand equity. This is why Psalm 137 
is so powerful and pertinent and applicable for our world today. Written by an anonymous poet, Psalm 137 is written by an oppressed person to an oppressed people to remind them that God has and he will bring them through their current oppression. You see, the unknown writer of Psalm 137 was himself a slave. He was a slave to the Babylonians. He was part of the Babylonian captivity. He had been taken away from Jerusalem and into Babylon. But by the grace of God, he survived that 70-year Babylonian captivity. And now he's writing this psalm after the fact to encourage his people that they can make it through tough times. Because the God who was with them in slavery is the God who will be with them in freedom. He's speaking in the past tense, which lets us know that his experience with slavery was something in the past, as he is now using that experience to help him grapple with his present in the midst of freedom. No doubt back in Jerusalem as a result of King Darius passing a decree after having defeated Babylon to send the Jews back home. So this author is anonymous. This author is old. This author is a former slave. And this author has proven to be a survivor. Today, we're going to see three things from this text. We're going to see, number one, what we did. We're going to see, number two, what they did. And then number three, we're going to see what we did not do. So if you're ready, let's go to point number one, and that is what we did. I call your attention back to Psalm 137, verses 1 and 2. The Bible reads, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. So we're about to see what we did, what the Hebrews, what the Jews did as they were in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. The first thing we see from this passage is that we sat down. No doubt they are exhausted either by work or just by the emotional pain of it all uh, that they just had to sit down. And if you notice, they sat down by the rivers of Babylon. And this could be the Euphrates River or the Tigris River or even another river that is mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, the Kibar River. When the priest Ezekiel, who was also a captive or a slave, that when he sat down by the river Kibar, in Babylon, that is when he received a revelation or a vision from God and a vision of God. And so the river was a place where the Jews would often go in the midst of their captivity to encounter God, to worship God in the beauty of nature, to see the freedom of a river, to remind them of the freedom that they once had, but lost because of their disobedience 
Going to the river for the Jewish people was a way to be in touch with the creator, was a way to, to sit and, and by the still waters and to remember that God is a good shepherd. Going out to the river, that was something that would be a part of the heritage of the Hebrew people because throughout scripture, even in the New Testament, you see the people going to the riverside. They would go to the riverside, no doubt, to have ceremonial washings and cleansings. John the Baptist preached at the Jordan River, and people came to be cleansed, to be uh, baptized, to repent of their sins. So the water represented cleansing, and it represented co co connecting and communicating with the God of nature and creation. And so the Jews there, they, they sat down by the river. But not only that, the Bible says that as they sat down, we wept. We sat down, yea, we wept. Because that's what slaves do. Slaves weep. Slaves are full of sorrow and anguish and despair. Emotionally, they're having to deal with this traumatic episode. And I know some of us are struggling right now because we've had to deal with the trauma of COVID-19 for several months now. Where some of us even feel incarcerated inside our own homes. Where we don't feel like we are free. Now we know that we're exaggerating because really we're spoiled. But when you look at the fact that these were people who were uprooted from their homeland in Israel and taken to Babylon and how they wept and they cried and they struggled. This was a hard experience. And the Bible says that we remembered Zion. So we remembered our homeland. Zion represents the land of Israel. The, the, the place where God's people resides. But Zion also represents the temple of God uh, where God would meet with his people. So as they are away from Zion, they are remembering Zion. They, they are remembering where they came from, which is why verse 5 says, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill." If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. You see, one of the purposes of enslaving a group of people is to indoctrinate them as you break them. Um, you don't want people in a foreign land thinking back to their homeland, because if they think too much about their homeland, then they might rebel and try to break free and go back to their homeland. So therefore, it was the job of the enslaver, in this case the Babylonians, to Babylonize the captives. Uh, it was their role in order uh, to brainwash the slaves, to make them forget where they came from. So if you were to read the book of Daniel, you would see this take place because Daniel himself was one of the captives uh, in Babylon. He was taken away from Jerusalem and taken to Babylon in captivity. 
and he was a young man. He was um, a very gifted and blessed young man. And so the enemy or the Babylonians would take the cream of the crop from the Jews in order to disciple them or Babylonize them, brainwash them, turn them into Babylonian projects and people. And they would do this by filling their minds with Babylonian literature, meaning that they're no longer reading Hebrew literature. They also impressed upon them the Babylonian language. They also impressed upon them Babylonian names. And so we know that uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were given these Babylonian names to, to just remove them not only from their culture, but to remove their culture from them. It was a way of taking power from them. Now, before I go any further, it will be clear that there are some um, equivalences that can be made between the Hebrew people and my ancestors who were enslaved in America. So there, there, there are some equivalences, not, not a direct equivalency, but there are some applications that can be gained and learned because like the Hebrews, my people have been enslaved for 400 years since the Middle Passage and, and the slave trade. Uh, so, so 400 years, the Jews were enslaved to the Egyptians. 70 years, they were enslaved to the Babylonians. So the Hebrew people understood slavery of being uprooted from their land, taken to another land. And, and as I mentioned, my people, we understand that. And that's another thing that gives us hope when we read scripture, uh, which, going back to last week's message, there was an intentional effort by the oppressor, the slave master, to remove certain portions of the Bible from the Bible so that enslaved people would not gain hope in the midst of their plight. And so when we look at this, I think this thing will preach itself. But since I'm called to be the preacher, let me keep on going with the text. They not only sat down, they not only wept, they not only remembered Zion, but the scripture says in verse 2, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. So we hung up our instruments. We, we didn't even want to play our instruments because playing our instruments was one way to worship God. Playing our instruments was one way for us to sing to God. But we are so discouraged. We are so depleted that we don't even want to play our instruments or sing anymore. So we hung up our hearts these are the things that we did in the midst of our captivity in Babylon. At this point, brothers and sisters, it's safe to say that the Hebrew people felt defeated. That the Hebrew people felt helpless, powerless, belittled, and yes, oppressed. To be oppressed is to be pressed by unjust treatment. To be oppressed is to be pressed, crushed, squeezed by unjust treatment. Oppression can be physical pressure. Oppression can be spiritual pressure, emotional pressure, mental pressure, all causing a poor quality of life. 
So as these things come at you on the outside to press you, they end up affecting you negatively on the inside, which means your oppression can lead to depression because something is squeezing you, something is pressing you in, and it is unjust what is, being happen what is happening to you. So oppression is something that is unjust, that is hurting and squeezing and destroying a person or a people. But here's the good news. The Bible was written by oppressed people, for oppressed people, encouraging them to look to an oppressed savior who came to deliver us from our oppression. Yes, yes, yes. The Bible was written by oppressed people, people who were enslaved or people who had known slavery. But not only that, it was written by oppressed people to oppressed people. And it spoke of an oppressed savior who would come to deliver us from our oppression. This is why, this is why I believe we need to listen to the voices of the oppressed as they, we sing, as we, they preach, as we, they interpret scripture. But here's the point. All of us are oppressed if we have the humility to admit it, whether our ancestors were enslaved or not, we've all been oppressed. We've all been crushed. We are all weak. And those are the people that Jesus came to heal. But the religious people missed the Lord because they could not admit that they were oppressed, that they were broken, that they were sick, that they were blind. But for people who have literally gone through oppression, we can identify quicker with the Lord, more deeply with the Lord. Oh, my goodness. You don't believe me? Listen to Acts chapter 10, verse 38. It says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So we see here that oppression, ultimate pro, uh, oppression comes from Satan. It, it's a spiritual thing. And, and Satan can work through people who even pose as ministers of light, but they oppress people either with their false teaching, putting yokes of bondage and legalism and law on people, oppressing them. Or they can also oppress them through unrighteous deeds like enslaving people, even in the name of Jesus. Or exploiting people, uh, segregating against people in the name of Jesus. Oppression ultimately is from the devil. But Jesus, in his ministry, he went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Doesn't that make you feel good that you have a savior who will come see about you, who will come lift that heavy burden off of you, who have come to who has come to put a muzzle on the mouth of the enemy and to speak life to you in your situation. What a mighty God we serve. You see, Jesus was anointed to do that. 
Luke chapter 4, verse 18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the who? The captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus says, I was anointed to do this. Yes, I came. To save men's souls. But I also came to save men and women from the dread of oppression. From being captives, not only to sin, but captives to people who are sinful. You see, there's a lot of talk right now where people don't believe that systemic racism is real. People always want to talk about, you know, there's a sin problem. Uh, but but yeah, I, I say there's a sin problem that leads to a skin problem that leads to a systemic problem. And so we need to see sinners saved and systems adjusted. We just can't trust that a saved sinner is going to have a change of heart to change an unjust system. This is where we come back to we must demand that unjust systems change. Because if we sit around waiting for someone who say they, they've had a heart change to change the system that benefits them. No, we're going to be waiting for a long time. So the people who are not beneficiaries of the system must speak up against systemic injustice and systemic racism. And we're seeing this happening in a, in a new way in 2020. Where unjust systems are being exposed and hopefully they're going to come down and be rebuilt here in America to make this a more just nation. Amen. And then it will truly be a nation under God. So what we did, we, we struggled in our captivity. But we're so glad that we have a God who came in the midst of our captivity to set us free. Not from Rome, first and foremost, but from our sin, from death, and from Satan, first and foremost. And he is the one who will come back, and he will reign and rule on the earth from Jerusalem, and the government will be upon his shoulder. My God. Because Jesus will come, and he will make things right that are wrong. In the meantime, the church has a role to play. So if we remain silent, that means we're complicit to the injustice. But Psalm 137 says, oh, no, 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 no. The oppressed are looking for justice from the oppressor. My God. Can we go to point two? Can we go to point two? And this is what they did. Who is they? The Babylonians. Who is they? The oppressors. What did they do? Verse three. For there, those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So what they did, they, they carried us away captive. And God used Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon as his instrument to get the attention of his people, the Jews. Because they had strayed from him, they had turned their backs on him, they had given themselves to idolatry, they were defiant, they did not let the land have a Sabbath the way God had told them every seven years, let the land breathe, let the land rest, but no, they kept on every year uh, disobeying God because it was all about the money, getting the money from the harvest. So God says, okay, 
What I'm going to do is uproot you from the land, put you in another land, and that way Jerusalem and all of Israel will have 70 years for that land to come back, for that land to breathe, since you didn't want to obey me while you were in the land. Oh my goodness. So he used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians as his servant, as his instrument to get the attention of the Jews and to put them into bondage because God knows some of us won't pray unless we're in trouble. Some of us won't even look to God and consider changing our ways until we find ourselves in a jail cell or in a hospital bed or, or we're broken. We've been put out of our home. Whatever the case may be, we've got to go through some stuff in order to look up to God. So captivity can be a good thing because God can use that to bring us back to our senses. And that is what happened with Israel. They carried us away captive. They asked of us a song. So here it is, y'all. Here it is. So the enslaver is asking the slaves to sing. And to sing one of their songs of Zion or, or one of their church hymns. Not because they want to get closer to the God of the Hebrews. They don't even believe in the God of the Hebrews because in their mind, the God of the Babylonians just defeated the God of the Hebrews. So their God has no power. So this was them literally saying, we're taunting you. We're making fun of you. We're rubbing it in that you and your God could not defeat us. And we're flexing our power over you by asking you to sing one of the songs that you used to sing in your homeland. So, so this is really saying perform for us. Be a buffoon for us. We're to make light of you and, and, and see you as being little. Sing for us. That's what they did. But not only that, they plundered us, the Bible says. They, they stole from us. So when they came upon Jerusalem and they burned the temple down, they also ransacked the temple before they burned it down. They stripped the gold off the doors and took all the gold artifacts out of the temple. So they plundered. They took resources, gold away from the Jews, just robbed them. But not only did they carry them away captive and ask for a song and plundered them, they also requested mirth in verse three. The oppressor requested mirth or in other words, they demanded of them a joyful song. That's what mirth is, a joyful song. So, so the oppressor demanded that people who are weeping and distraught and discouraged, depressed and oppressed, to now turn around and sing a happy song. Now, why do you think that the enslaver asked the slaves to sing a happy song? Well, outside of, once again, wanting to see them act like buffoons, they also wanted to feel good about the bad thing that they were doing to these people. Because deep down inside, they had some kind of conscience, and they knew that the way they were treating the Jews was wrong. But if they can see the Jews singing some happy songs, that will make the oppressor feel a little bit better about the oppression that they are re uh, uh, placing upon the oppressed. So perform for us, dance for us. So the oppressor felt powerful in this moment. If the oppressed felt powerless, the oppressor is feeling powerful and superior. 
and better and stronger and richer and uh, mightier and wiser. They're in control in this moment. And so they are inflicting this kind of grief on the people of God. So we've seen point one, what we did. Point two, what they did. And finally now, point three, what we did not do. So remember, they're saying in verse three, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Now, there's an exclamation point after Zion, which means they are exclaiming, they are shouting, they are commanding. Sing us one of these happy songs from Zion. Sing us one of your worship songs about the God that we just defeated. Perform for us, dance for us, sing for us. So what did we not do? The Bible says in verse four, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So in other words, they were saying, we're not gonna sing for you. How shall we sing? We sing for God. We don't sing for you. How shall we say? So, so the Hebrews asked themselves a question. We asked ourselves, how shall we sing? In other words, we have too much self-dignity to do this. We have too much self-worth and self-respect to lower ourselves to entertain for you. Yes, you have enslaved our bodies, but you have not enslaved our will. And we are taking authority and power in this moment by what we're not going to do as opposed to doing what you say we ought to do. So we're taking power back as you've taken so much from us. By not singing, we reminded ourselves that we still had power. We still had worth and value and self-dignity. It reminds me of when the civil rights movement birthed through the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. As Rosa Parks boycotted by staying in her seat in the quote unquote colored section, not getting up and giving her seat away to a white patron the way so many blacks uh, would do during that time. That when the white part of the bus would fill up, whites would then demand seats of blacks in the colored section in the back. And on that particular day, Rosa says, I'm not getting up. In other words, I'm not going to sing for you. And as a result of that resistance, that boycott, the black community in Montgomery came together and for 381 days, they did not ride the buses. They resisted the oppressor and they hit the oppressor where it hurts the most and that is in their wallet. We talk about heart change. Usually the wallet's got to change in order to get some people's attention. Jesus can't even get their attention, but you start messing with people's money. Then all of a sudden now they want to talk about God and talk about unity and everything else. So after 381 days, the buses were desegregated in Montgomery, Alabama. But that started because a woman and a group of people refused to give in to the oppression of the oppressor. So I'm asking, I'm asking, how, how can we sing 
when the police who murdered Breonna Taylor in her sleep still have not been arrested, still have not been charged? How can we sing when the police who murdered Elijah McClain still have not been arrested and still have not been charged? How can we sing when Flint, Michigan still doesn't have clean water to drink? How can we sing? Where's our self-worth and, and our dignity, not only as black people, but as Americans? We would rather walk for 381 days in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955 and 56, as opposed to riding your segregated buses. We'd rather walk with dignity as opposed to riding in shame. Muhammad Ali said, I would rather not box than go to war to fight against an enemy who never oppressed me in this country. I'd rather not box. It was Colin Kaepernick who would rather take a knee and risk his financial future as opposed to just playing football and not talking about the issues of police brutality. He'd rather kneel and risk losing millions as opposed to keeping his knee off the ground and signing checks and throwing footballs. There are students from my alma mater who would rather leave that school than stay at that school under a racist president named Jerry Falwell Jr. We'd rather not sing your anthem because of the third stanza which Francis Scott Key wrote, no refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave. And so people talk about the Star Spangled Banner and, and that first stanza. What about the third stanza that not only promoted slavery in the midst of a fight for freedom, but it was saying, you can't get away from us, slave, even if you run over to the other side of the enemy. What's so great about that? There's nothing great about that for the slave or his or her descendants. We resisted. We defied. We boycotted and we protested. The Jews did that. We're not singing. But guess what, though? The, the oppressor can always find at least one or two of the oppressed who will sing for them. I mean, in the book of Daniel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they took the stand, but their peers did not. They bowed the knee to the gods of Babylon. They bowed the knee to the culture and the foods of Babylon. But not Daniel and his men. There will always be people in the midst of the oppressed who will sell themselves to the master. Who will say to the slaves in the field, speaking from the porch of the house, we're better than you as you work in the field. We're close to master. To which the field slave would say, but guess what? You still a slave. We're out in these fields with our dignity. You inside the house with your shame. What Psalm 137 says to us, there comes a time when the people of God must be defiant. 
There comes a time when the people of God must resist, must boycott. There comes a time when the people of God must protest and stand against oppression, unjust treatment, and unjust system. There comes a time where we need to stand and stop singing. You see, NASCAR took a stand. They took a stand greater than the church took a stand. NASCAR removed the Confederate flag off of its logo. They stood with Bubba Wallace as he experienced racism in his garage through a hanging noose. They wept with him. They stood with him. And not only that, they also played the black national anthem, lift every voice before race, as a way of saying to Bubba Wallace and the few African-American fans of NASCAR, Bernard Pollard, I know you're a new fan. Maybe there will be more now because they are seeing action from NASCAR to right past wrongs. Mississippi did it. They finally said, we're going to take the Confederate flag off of our state flag. They did it. But I wonder if our governor, Bill Lee, is going to remove that bust from the state capitol. I, I, I hope so. Other states are saying, you know what? Maybe these protesters wouldn't rip down these statues if we had questioned why they were put up in the first place, when they were put up, where they were put up, and if we had the conviction of conscience to do something about it in times of peace, we wouldn't have to be reacting in times of protest. Man, we, that's why we can't wait for folks' hearts to change, for change to happen. Sometimes the oppressed has to demand change. And for Christians, we must demand change in a peaceful way, in a proper way that honors God. And if you've ever wondered what you would have done during the civil rights movement, you know, because a lot of people say, man, if I was there, I would have marched with Dr. King. If you ever wonder what you would have done, just look at what you're doing or what you're not doing now during this human rights movement. That'll say a lot about what you would have done back then. What you're doing now or what you're not doing now says who you are. But one more time, you have a chance to be on the correct side of history. To stand with and for the marginalized. To stand with and for the disenfranchised. To use your power to confront the powers that be. Psalm 137 is beautiful. Because it reminds us that God is not only on the side of the oppressed. But he is also for the oppressed when the oppressed say we're not taking it anymore. We're not singing your songs or we're not singing our songs for you. See, there was a time when black artists in America during the days of segregation refused to sing to segregated audiences. So when concert promoters reached out to Sammy Davis Jr. and James Brown and Lena Horne and Paul Robeson and to Billie Holiday and to Josephine Baker, these artists would say, we're not coming 
if the audiences are segregated. Therefore, they lost a whole lot of money, but they maintained their pride and their dignity. They refused to sing under segregated terms. And one artist in particular, her name is Marion Anderson. She performed throughout the United States and Europe. And in 1939, the Daughters of the American Revolution invited her to Washington, D.C. to sing. Because once again, the oppressor loves when we entertain. They love how we sing. So the Daughters of the American Revolution invited Marian Anderson to come and sing in Constitution Hall. But they said to her, the audience is going to be segregated. Blacks on one side, whites on the other side. To which Marian Anderson said, I'm not coming to sing to a segregated audience in 1939. I'd rather not sing and keep my dignity than sing and lose my dignity. Well, she made her stand. But so did the president and first lady of the United States, Franklin D. Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, who happened to be friends with Marian Anderson. They said, OK, that door closed over there to sing in Constitution Hall. We'll invite you to sing an outdoor open air concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. And so on Easter Sunday, Marian Anderson stood before 75,000 people in an integrated audience. And she gave a magnificent concert. And guess what happened in 1943? Those same folks who told her, if you come, you must sing to a segregated audience. But she refused. Those same folks called her back. And they said, um, we'd like for you to come back and sing for us. And this time, the audience will be integrated. So what's the point? Had Marian Anderson chose to sing to a segregated audience, the evil of segregation would have carried on. But because she used her power and chose to not use her voice, it caused change to occur in the culture, so much so that now the historical oppressor is saying, we want you to come and sing to an integrated audience. So the oppressor changed because the oppressed took a stand. I want to encourage you, keep taking a stand, keep making a stand, keep resisting, keep protesting, and yes, do it peacefully. You've been anointed to help the oppressed. You've been authorized by God to say enough is enough. I'm not accepting this anymore. Things have got to change and they won't change until truly changed people change the system. Father, thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen.